We've been going through what we call uh, our series, Inspired. And we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe every book in the Bible is God-breathed. So we believe everything from Genesis through Revelation is the canonized books that we have it uh, that we have are inspired in God breathed. We believe that they're profitable for every person in this room. We believe the Bible is true for all people of all places of all times. Now, we, we've been in this series where we've gone from Genesis all the way through Malachi. Genesis through Malachi. And we've established that the Bible really dis- discloses and declares a story where a betrayed lover, that being God, who was rejected by man all the way back in the garden, has continued from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation to pursue us and woo us and chase after us, to invite us back into a relationship of fellowship and family with him forever. Now, here's what we know. Here's what we know. That is the story and the theme of the scripture. We know that a lot of stories, once upon a time, do not always end with a happy ending. We know that in a lot of stories, there's a lot of narratives that fall apart. A lot of marriages fall apart. A lot of family relational uh, dynamics fall apart. God's story has got some twists and turns, but it ends well. It, It ends with a celebration. It ends in a beautiful way. It just takes a little bit of time to get there to it. As we've gone through the first 39 books of the Old Testament, it's been a struggle because you've seen failure, you've seen sin, you've seen rebellion, you've seen evil, corruption, darkness. You've seen all kinds of things happen. You've seen a few wins and victories along the way, but it's fatiguing. You've seen God's covenant people rebel against him. You've seen the people that God's created in his image choose not to walk with him. It's been all over the map. And then we finally are reaching this place now where we're picking up what we call the new covenant. Now there's 27 books that make up what we call the new Testament, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. It's really four gospels that present the good news of Jesus The new covenant really begins when Jesus says, this is my blood being poured out for you. And so really the first book of the new covenant is the book of Acts. But we've got these 27 that declare Jesus. And all of a sudden, Mike, we've struggled through the first 39. And when we pick up what we call the new covenant, and we start to ponder a little bit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that shattered door of failure and guilt, And condemnation and shame, all of a sudden, man, it starts to swing open. And the rusty hinges give way to hope and grace and love and mercy. And and you're starting to feel like, man, maybe there's there's hope. Maybe there's encouragement. Maybe we can win. And that's what we're going to be picking it up over the next weeks as we start to contemplate the new covenant and what God does in the new covenant. It's a very powerful thing. You pick up the Gospels and start to read that, I mean, after 400 years of silence and God hasn't spoken since he spoke through Malachi and there's been all this hush and all of a sudden you pick up the Gospels and it's like, oh, God makes house calls now, not just to a group of people, but selectively the physicians willing to come to the sick. Yes, we read that in the Gospels. We we read where your cry for mercy 
when you've jacked it up, your cry for mercy, God's like, I hear you. I haven't forgot about you. We read where God is going to continue to build his kingdom, and he's going to use people like you and people like me to be a part of his economy, and we're going, you've got to be kidding me. This is too good to be true. So today, here's where I'm going to go. I'm going to kind of paint up the narrative of the old and paint up a narrative of the new, and this is going to be a bridge week that's going to take us to a place where we're able to explore, starting next week, the four Gospels. Then we'll get into the book of Acts, the book of Romans, and then we're going to start to crawl our way through the new covenant to have an understanding of who God is. Jesus comes on the scene, and he tells us that I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. I've come that you might have abundant life, and abundant life is not about materialistic possessions, it's not about you stockpiling your stuff now. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And what he means is, I've come so that you can enjoy the presence and the power and the perspective and the intimacy of a relationship with God. Y'all jacked it up. You turned your back on him. But I'm, I'm coming to restore that. And, and, and I'm coming because the mission of heaven is to love God and to love others. And I know you struggle doing that, but I'm going to show you how to live it out. So that's where uh, we're, we're going to go. But today, I just want to kind of paint up kind of a boomerang approach. If you study the Bible, how God's design kind of starts and then the boomerang, how it kind of comes back and how God kind of redeems and restores even in the midst of our failure. First point was this. If you look at the, uh, the slides up here, uh, uh, we'll make this available. We'll put it on our website. For some of you, you need to go back through this and get your mind around it. But what you see is God creating. Right out of the gate, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void without form. God created and so God makes man in his own image. The Bible says he created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun. He created whatever. And at the end of the sixth day, listen, God creates man. Man and God are walking with no interruptions, no hindrances. They're walking in freedom and in intimacy. Man is made in the image of God, which means he reflects the nature and glory of God. God is... Triune, he's Father, Son, and Spirit. Man is triune, he's body, soul, and spirit. Man is walking with God. The scripture says that they were naked and they felt no shame. Everything was going on really well. God does the, uh, the miraculous, in my opinion, as we have it captured in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, where God looks down and he says, man, I've, I've made you. It's not good to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. And then he says in Genesis 2, 16, I'm going to give y'all freedom. I'm not going to create robots. I'm not going to create these, these beings that are already pre-programmed that just have to do whatever. He says, uh, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but if you eat off the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. I'm a loving God. I'm a caring God. I've made you. I'm going to give you freedom. And so man is walking and everything is good. And then we enter into the next phase where Satan and sin enter the equation First two chapters of Genesis, man, it's just cool. Genesis 2.25, they were naked, felt no shame. They didn't have to cover. They didn't have to hide. 
And then Satan basically comes and starts to tempt and deceive. And he looks at Eve and basically says, uh, God's holding out on you. And, and, and God knows if you eat off of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be smart and become brilliant like God. God's withholding something from you. And that's been the lie from hell ever since the fall of man in the garden. God's holding out on you. You're missing something. There's a better life somewhere apart from God. You read in Genesis 3 where the silence of Adam kicks in. God had told Adam to stand up for his wife, to speak up, to fight for her. He doesn't do it. And so he's silent. Eve doesn't make an independent decision on her own. He's right there with her. After he eat, or she eats, she hands the forbidden fruit to him. He eats with her. And so the silence of Adam disrupted family. It disrupted homes because guys weren't willing to stand up and fight for truth. Y'all with me? And so all of us are born into the world with the Adamic nature, Adam's nature. Romans 5 says, where, where, Wherefore, by one man's sin, death entered into the world, and death has spread to all men. All of us have sinned. And the crazy thing is, when you start to study Genesis, when sin and Satan really start to get a stronghold, Eve didn't stop believing in God. She just stopped trusting him. And there's a lot of us in this room that have screwed up our lives. We've been in and out of relationships, and we've been in and out of jail, and we've been in and out of all kinds of wreckage in our life. And you didn't stop believing in God. You just stopped trusting in him, and you started to think that something else could bring you more value than him. There it goes, man. I created y'all. Look at y'all. You've turned your back on me. And so we... We start to walk into it, man. It, it gets messy with sin and, and Satan. And then all of a sudden, God says, you know what? It's, it's jacked up. It's ruined. I, I'm going to bring judgment on you, man. So Genesis 6, 7, and 8, God looks at Noah and says, man, here's what you got to do. I want you to build this ark. He gives him the, di the directions and dimensions of what it's supposed to be like. Take your family. Take a few animals. Bam, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start over almost. So God judges man. Destruction comes, and you can read the Genesis account. God, what were you doing? I was judging sin. I was judging man. I was judging rebellion. So Noah and his family make it, but they're still not perfect. They're still flawed. They're still jacked up. And by the time you get just a, a few years later, man's not trusting God. Man's not running to God. You know what man does? Man chooses to come up with his own solutions that we call religion, and man says, I'm going to create religion to connect with God. You get to Genesis chapter 11, you see man saying, hey, I think we know how to do this. Man builds what we call the Tower of Babel. I'm going to build this thing as high up into the heavens as I can. We've got to get to God. Well, the problem is, the problem is God created you and you're to worship God on God's terms, not your terms. It's not going to work. And so God confuses their language. That's where the term babbling came from, the Tower of Babel. And you, you can't use religion to get to me, but man has tried to use that. There's New Age religion. There's Hinduism. There's Buddhism in our culture. Catholicism is a religion. Uh, Mormonism is a religion. The whole uh, Jehovah Witness movement. The, but the, listen to me. 
But the problem here in the Bible belt of the bondage belt is a lot of people lean more into their Baptist marinade, Pentecostal marinade, Methodist marinade than they do Jesus. They still use religious leverage at times. So what are you saying? I'm saying God creates. Satan and sin, man, enter the the portrait. It kind of jacks everything up. God sends forth judgment, man. The flood comes. There's a remnant that God saves, Noah and his family. But man comes out of the flood, and years later, it's like, man, we're going we're gonna to come up with our solutions to get, my, uh, to get back to God. You would be wise to write it down, but the word religion in its purest definition means to return to bondage. And any time you turn to a religious system, you're turning to a man-made solution that is not going to work. People ask me at times, hey, are you a religious guy? I am not religious. I'm not. I'm in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the risen king, but I'm not into religion. Religion is to return to bondage. Study religion. Study to see what religion has done to man. Study to see the guilt and shame it's brought about. All of a sudden, God looks down and he says, Here, here's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going I'm to make a covenant with a group of people. And all of a sudden, he looks at a guy by the name of Abram that he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless your seed. All of a sudden, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a, a child. You can read the account. But they have a son by the name of Isaac. Now, Abraham, as we know, didn't wait for Sarai to be able to conceive. He went out and messed around with a chick by the name of Hagar, had sex with Hagar. Hagar had a baby, and they named that baby Ishmael. It was a wild donkey, wild ass of a child based on what Scripture says. And the entire nation of Islam is birthed through that seed. But I'm going to bless you, Abraham. you got to wait for me. And Sarah conceives, and they give birth to Isaac, which means joyful one or laughter. And then all of a sudden, Isaac starts to grow. They go out and find a wife for Isaac. They found this chick by the name of Rebecca and said, Rebecca, are you willing to go and be this man's wife? And she says, I am. And all of a sudden, they have children. They have twins. And Isaac and Rebecca have these twins named Jacob and Esau. And that's a crazy story in itself, but finally God gets Jacob to a breaking point, and he says, I'm going to change your name to Israel. And Israel means you're going to struggle and wrestle with me, but you will prevail. This is God's design. This is God's blueprint. You can't miss it. And then he looks and he says, uh, I'm going to change your name to Israel. Israel. Israel had 12 sons. All of a sudden, God makes a covenant, if you will, with Israel to say, I'm going, to set apart, I'm going to set aside and set apart your 12 sons, and we're going to have the 12 tribes of Israel and Reuben and Judah and all these different names appear, and some rule the north and some rule the southern part of Israel, the southern northern kingdom. Listen, I'm going to set y'all apart. Now, represent me to the world. I'm going to make a covenant with you, but, but stay strong. Honor me. And so they go out, and again, there's failure after failure, and there's corruption after corruption. The people of Israel finally reach a boiling point where they're like, we want to be like other nations. We appreciate these 12 tribes. We appreciate having the right pedigree and the right lineage. But we want to be like the other nations. And God goes, why do you want to be like the other nations? Well, they've got an earthly king, and we want an earthly king. Give us an earthly king. 
So 1 Samuel chapter 8, God goes, I'll give you an earthly king. And so the people appoint and anoint Saul to be their king. And Saul's tall and dark and handsome, and he's a good-looking political figure, if you will. But he gets exposed multiple times, and God tells him to go into the land of the Amalekites, and I want you to go destroy everything, and I want you to kill Agag, and I don't want you to bring back any spoil. And he goes there, and he negotiates. And God goes, I allowed you to be anointed king, but I'm taking my hand off your life because partial obedience is like witchcraft. And he's basically looking at Israel saying, you want to be like other nations? All right, then go for it. You want an earthly king? What you're saying is you don't want a heavenly king and you don't want a God to lead you. You would rather have a man lead you? Go for it. And so Saul collapses and David is anointed king and David has a few glamorous moments and then David jacks it up because he violates Deuteronomy 17, 17 where the, the Lord said the king shall not multiply in wives lest his heart get hard toward God and he shouldn't multiply his army and he did. And God goes, David, you're not going to build the temple. And all of a sudden, David has a son, Solomon, through an adulterous, immoral relationship with Bathsheba. And whatever David did, Solomon did on steroids. David had multiplied women. Solomon took it to a whole new level with women, with wealth, whatever. And from 1 Samuel chapter 8 throughout Samuel, throughout Kings, all you see is failed kingship. One king comes, and eventually he falls apart. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the king. I saw him die. Yeah, because he negotiated with God. I saw even what Isaiah said, I saw a failed kingship. And then all of a sudden just keeps beating along. Fell kingship, fell kingship. And then God uses the last minor prophet by the name of Malachi. If you're Italian, you probably call him Malachi, but Malachi, <laughs> Italians love to think that they have something to do with scripture. So here's the deal. <laughs> yeah, Spazito, baby. His name is Malachi. Yeah. <laughs> so, so check it out. So Malachi, God uses him to speak. And this is what Malachi screams at the top of his lungs in, in, in regards to declaration from God's heart. God, listen to me hates divorce you have divorced God God has continued to chase after you but you have separated yourself from God and this wasn't just a God hates divorce when it came to marriage this was a this was the heart of heaven you have divorced your allegiance to me you've turned your back on me you've separated from me you won't honor the covenant that I made with you and then he looks and he says, and you're robbing me, you're stealing from me, and you're not willing to get right with me. Y'all listen to me, please. When you study the Old Testament from Genesis all the way up until Malachi, and we've jogged through it, that is the progression you see. God creating. Satan and sin entered the portrait. God judges through the flood. Man turns to religion through the Tower of Babel and continues that narrative. And then all of a sudden you see God still loving his people, setting aside the 12 tribes to represent him. And then you see failed kingship because of the rebellion of the people. And then after Malachi speaks, it's like, shh. 
It's just hush. God goes 400 years without raising up a prophet. God goes 400 years without speaking to and through another man to become his voice piece to Israel. Malachi spoke. God, are you dead? No. God, are you shy? No. God, are you silent? Yes. Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their, their land. But my people have rebelled against me. They have rejected me. They have turned to man-made solutions. They do not want to know me, and they do not want to enjoy me. And then all of a sudden, the boomerang. It's about to come back down. What are you going to do, God? You want a king. You have failed repeatedly in your ability to identify and appoint kings to lead you. I am God. I have never ceased to be God. I will send a king. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. I'm sending a king. And he will be born of a virgin. He will be baptized and you will hear me declare this is my son and him I'm well pleased. He will launch his public ministry. He will minister for three plus years. He will eventually go down the Via Della Rosa to the place of the cross and die a criminal's death once and for all to atone for sin. He will be raised on the third day. He will be seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will live to make intercession. But y'all want a king, I will send a king. So God willfully lays aside his deistic privileges and clothes himself in human flesh, and Jesus is born. And we read that his kingdom will have no end. We read that the government will rest on his shoulder. We read that his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. We read that he will be Emmanuel, which means God in flesh. So all of a sudden we pick up the Gospels and we're introduced to the King is coming. And the King is going to live among us. And we beheld the glory of the king. The glory is the only begotten of the father who was full of grace and truth. We beheld the king. And so you see God starting to turn the, the events around. The boomerang is coming back. Fell kingship, I got it. I'll send a king. So he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and all of a sudden, he launches his public ministry. Don't miss it. He launches his public ministry, and then all of a sudden, God looks at him. This is my beloved son. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to go down to the piers. I want you to go down to the backwoods. Before we had anointed a guy by the name of Abram who became Abraham, he was kind of a select family, if you will, of pedigree. But I want you to go down to the back roads, man, to the back woods where 
common folk are. And I want you to start to select guys to be your disciples. So he goes down and he finds Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, all these guys. And he looks at them and he says, Nick Howard, why don't you follow me? Come on, Nick. Jesse Cash, why don't you follow me? Jai, why don't you follow me? And he starts to select these guys and he says, you, follow me. Follow me. Which literally meant these guys had passed the age of where rabbis would have selected them. When you study the age of Peter, James, and John, they were about 18 years old. But when he says, follow me, it literally means, Oliver, I believe in you, and I believe you've got what it takes to be just like me. Now, come hang with me. And so, Megan, he went to, Madison, he went to, Hannah, he went to these overlooked. And he said, follow me. Alex, come, come follow me. Hannah, Cash, come, come, come on. Follow me. And it literally means, I believe in you. And I believe you've got what it takes to be just like me. So Jesus selected the 12. And the scripture says, even though these 12 tribes had failed, and even though kingship had failed, Jesus selects these 12. And the scripture says that even after they looked at these guys who were 19, 20, 21 years old. It says that even the religious people took note and said, these are uneducated men, but they've hung out with Jesus and we don't know what to do with them. Yes, I'm reversing the curse, guys. Everything that the Old Covenant and the Old Testament presented, I'm reversing the curse. I select the 12, and they're going to walk with me. And Jesus took them out and empowered them. And he would eventually use these guys to turn the world upside down. These guys would eventually die martyrs' death. They were not afraid to proclaim to the masses that Jesus Christ was Lord. They would take the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Once Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. When Jesus allowed the Holy Ghost to be dumped at Pentecost, these dudes rocked the world with the gospel. So Jesus selects the 12. And then Jesus looks where man had turned to religion. Jesus in earthly flesh looks and says, I've got to confront religion. Religion don't work. Religion is these man-made solutions and substitutes. And so he goes at the Pharisees. He goes at the Sadducees. He goes at the Essenes. He goes at many of those religious groups in that day that were weighing the people down. And even Matthew would capture after his baptism, Danny, Matthew would capture this where Jesus is standing amongst this Jewish populace of people. And he said, y'all heard it said? You, you've heard it said by the law. You've heard it said by those who want to weigh people down. But, but I say to you. And then he looks and he says, why don't you come to me? All of you who are weary and tired and beat up and heavy laden, who are stressed out with religion, come to me and take my yoke and learn from me. Learn my sayings. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. He confronts religion. One of the most powerful, I believe, passages in the entire 
four Gospels. Pretty much people know this passage is Luke chapter 15. And it's like, oh yeah, that's the story of the prodigal son. It's the one of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But if you read verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus comes down on the Pharisees and the religious people because it says they were jacking with him and jawing and dogging and criticizing him. They're like, look at this guy. He hangs out with the despicable. He hangs out with sinners and sluts and drunks and thugs and And Jesus stops and says, let me tell y'all some stories. There there was a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of them got lost. And and the shepherd left the 99 to go after the one. And when he found him, heaven threw a party. Who was he talking to? The religious group that continued, they tried to continue to take him down. There was this lady that He got married, and her husband had bought her this neat crown, and it had these 10 jewels in it, and she loses one of them, which is a disgrace in that day, and she was heartbroken. She turned her house upside down looking for that one jewel to put back, and when she found it, she threw a party and told everybody, y'all got to come celebrate. That's what heaven does when a lost sinner comes back home. There was this man that he had two sons, and... He loved both his boys, but the younger one decided, hey, give me my inheritance now while I can enjoy it. And he wasted it away on wine, women, and song. Brutal. And he he was living in a far country with a pig farmer, and he's a Jewish dude, and he don't even eat pork. And and then he's like, man, I got to go back home. And he prepares this like cute speech that he's going to tell his dad. But when his dad saw him at his distance, his dad jumped off the porch and ran and hugged him. And he said, my boy, you were lost, but now you're found. You were dead, but you've come back alive. And that's what God is about. And he's like, you people don't get it. But I'm confronting religion. Because people don't need religion. They need a relationship with Abba. They need to know that there's a God that loves them in spite of them. And so Jesus confronts religion. And he looks, and even John captures it when he says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. Don't, don't get all freaked out. You believe in God? Jesus says, believe in me. And then he says, Nick, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one's coming back to heaven to the Father except through me. Religion ain't going to do it. Following rules is not going to do it. So he confronts religion. And then, and then he judges sin. He judges sin. Where sin was judged through the flood in the Old Testament, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God judged sin once and for all at the cross. At the cross. The word of the cross to those perishing, it's 
foolish, but to those being saved, it's God's power unto salvation. God looks and says, it's got to be dealt with once and for all. That's the reason when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, there is the Lamb of God that will take away sin once and for all. The reason we're the cross here, we're not the oasis, we're not a subdivision, and we're not some other whatever name. When we started praying through this years ago, it's like, what are you going to name the church? We are the cross. That's who we are. Because the cross is where God dumped out his wrath once and for all on the person of Jesus Christ. It's where Jesus died a criminal's death. To atone for sin once and for all. What are you going to name this place? The cross. The cross is a place where God calls us to come and die so that we might find life. Name it something cute. Well, the gospel is not cute. The gospel is bloody. The gospel is messy. The gospel is centered on the cross. centered on the cross. So all of a sudden, it's like, bam, God creates Satan's sin. God judges religion, 12 tribes, fell kingship. Then God goes, oh, hold on, the boomerang's coming back. I, I got a plan. I, I want y'all to see how I unfold this thing. The king of kings is born. He's called us to make disciples now. Religion is confronted. God judges sin. Let's wrap it. And then you see Satan and sin being destroyed. The churches are birthed. God raises up a variety of people, Paul, Titus, Timothy, Barnabas, many others. They go out and start these churches in places like Rome and Corinth, and Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica, Galatia. I mean, they start these churches, they're preaching Jesus. Things are rocking along. Many of the disciples are martyred, killed because of their faith. We're going to kill John, the beloved who wrote the gospel. We're going to kill John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're going to kill him. We're going to send him off to the Isle of Patmos. We're going to fill up that huge pot out there full of water, and we're going to just heat it up. We're going to throw his tail in there and fry him. God, don't let him die. And while he's out there... <laughs> God goes, John, I want to give you a revelation of who I am. People go, man, I'm scared of the book of Revelation. I'm not because it's a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. It's how things unfold. He said, John, I want you to write some things down. Write to those seven churches over there in Philadelphia and Smyrna and these other places. They need to clean up their act. And so John just starts writing. And John starts seeing this revelation where people are around the th throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they're worshiping God. He goes, hey, 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 John, write this down. The accuser of the brethren is going to come against you. He's going to make accusations, the enemy, because the power, the power and the penalty for sin, I've dealt with it, but the presence is still going to be around you, and Satan is going to jack with you. You don't have to live under the power of sin anymore. I've dealt with it. You don't, you don't have to worry about the penalty, but Satan's going to jack. But tell, tell my people that they're going to overcome the enemy 
and they're going to overcome the accuser of the brethren through the blood of my son, through the power of their own testimony, and tell them to get to the place where they're not even afraid to die themselves, Revelation 12. Tell them to go represent me to the nations. Tell, tell them don't back down. Tell, t- tell them things end well in Revelation. Let me, let me show you how this is going to end. Then he paints it up. And by the time we get to Revelation 20, he says, tell my people who are my remnant, my people who have responded to me in faith, tell them that you saw this vision of the, all these people that know me worshiping all together different languages, different colors, different nationalities. Tell them, t- t- tell them, and tell them that you saw Satan and sin once and for all tied up and cast into the lake of fire forever. Where, where Satan and sin entered the landscape in Genesis 3, tell them in Revelation 20, there is an end. That, that, that's right. And then tell them that just as I created man to walk with me and worship me and enjoy me and how things kind of got sideways, tell them that in Revelation 21, that every person who repented, I'm not talking about acknowledged, demons believe and tremble. Demons will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Tell those whose names are written in the book of life that I'm going to celebrate with them and they're going to celebrate with me forever and ever and ever. Tell them that I'll wipe away every tear. Tell them that there'll be no more sorrow. Tell them about these jasper walls and pearly, but tell them I'm going to be there and they're going to be with me. Those who have repented and responded, whose names are in the book of life, tell them that we're going back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're going back to celebration with no interruptions. And you're going to be with me forever. So my challenge is we're transitioning from the old to the new. We're about to unpackage it. God lays it out in the beginning. God created. We jacked it up. We turned our backs on God. Praise the Lord after failed kingship. The King of kings and Lord of lords is available to each and every one of us. We can reign and rule with the king forever and ever and ever if we repent and if we're walking surrendered. But t- tell, tell those whose names are not found in the book of life that hell and eternal separation and lake of fire. But, 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 but tell them it's not because I didn't love them. Just tell them it's because they rejected my love for them. T- tell them I've been wooing them and pursuing them and chasing them generationally for 6,000 years. And I believe the Holy Spirit is settling in here right now saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Here's what I would say. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. 
Jesus came to make lost people found. Jesus came to rescue you out of the deepest darkness and deceit that you can imagine. He came to find that which was lost. That's what he said. Hey, Zacchaeus, did you not know that the Son of Man has come to seek and to find and to chase and to pursue that which is lost? That's our mission. That's his mission. And if you're lost today, the king is saying, come home. Let's get it right.